P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, everybody. I'm, we're here this morning, Thursday morning, for PIs Declassified. And today, I'm excited about a guest um, that I have been talking to for a while to be on this show. Finally, we were able to pull this off, Tara Godoy. Good morning, Tara. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Very good. Uh, Tara is a certified forensic nurse, so we're going to be talking about those kinds of things uh, regarding forensic evaluations and such. Uh, Before we talk about that, I just want to remind everybody that the NCISS uh, midterm meeting, National Council of Investigative and Security Services midterm meeting, has joined with the Michigan Council of Private Investigators in Michigan uh, this coming Sunday Monday, Tuesday, um, and there'll be a, also a, a conference put on by the Michigan organization. And if you haven't signed up and if you're interested in going, go to NCISS.org to get the details. Anyway, Tara, um, yes. tell me how, how did, I know you were a nurse originally, so how did you get involved in doing the legal end of the business of nursing? Well, it was interesting. I was, yeah, I was an emergency room nurse um, for several years in the Bay Area. I spent most of my time at Stanford. And then when I decided to get married and have children, I moved out of the um, peninsula and up to the North Bay and uh, thought I would still continue to do emergency nursing, but decided to take, initially to take a break while I raised my, my son. And then when I went back, I got a job doing device sales and then I decided that wasn't for me. And then what ended up happening is I had been interested in the law, even in high school, I did mock trials and things like that. And so I'd heard of what's called legal nurse consulting. And I looked into it, became certified in it and started working for a nurse. And while I was working for that nurse doing civil work, I got subpoenaed for a patient that I had taken care of while I was at Stanford and working in the emergency department there. And the investigator and I were chatting and I said, well, you know, I do this legal nurse consulting thing. So if you have any cases where you have medical records, let me know. And that dropped me into forensic nursing. And so I then started looking at um, doing criminal work and working with uh, defense attorneys and prosecutors on criminal cases. And so we, so I've been doing that now for, I started the business 10 years ago and um, my work personally is almost exclusively criminal or criminal related and but I have uh, several nurses and doctors that work for me so we do both criminal and civil work in the office. So you have you actually have a medical forensics uh, organization. Yeah I have a yeah I have a consulting firm basically and um, so I have office staff and I have nurses that are all employed and then I contract with physicians to review specific cases where we need their expertise. Okay, so uh, do you have a website, Tara, that you could provide? I do. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's Godoy Medical. So that's G-O-D-O-Y Medical dot net. Okay, good. And so if... Uh, if attorneys or investigators are listening and they needed uh, some forensic evaluations, then uh, would, there would be a way to contact you on that website? Yeah, absolutely. And what I always say is anytime you have medical records or traumatic injuries, that you should at least, at least give us a call because even if we don't have the right expert, then we will be able to refer you to somebody or help you find somebody that can help you. Cool. Very cool. Uh, very nice. So, um, so what kinds of, I, I know you're saying criminal, but what kinds of things would, would come under your purview of evaluation? We review everything from, you know, DUIs to homicides to, and everything in between. So it really depends on the needs of the case. And so, for example, my main area of areas of expertise are in strangulation and blunt force trauma. So I review a lot of domestic violence and child abuse cases. And then um, one of my other nurses in the office, her main expertise is traumatic brain injury. Um, So she'll review a lot of the DUI and um, also assault and and homicide cases that are related to brain injury. And then um, I have a couple nurses that from the perspective of like shaken baby or also known as abusive head trauma cases, um, we do a lot of consulting on those cases where we're helping uh, when it's the defense that is contacting us, we'll help them help determine what the medical records show in terms of potential medical defenses and what supports the allegations and what doesn't. So we, again, we do everything from that, you know, simple <laughs> DUI, medically acceptable blood draws, that kind of thing, all the way up to, to homicides. And it really depends on what the case is in terms of what our role is. Okay. And what, what, uh, what do you actually need? So, um, so if I call you with a case, what are you going to ask from me? Well, usually we'll do a quick consultation to make sure that we have an expert that can help you and, and try and determine whether it's a consulting where, we're, where you don't need testimony or it is a testimony case, and, and that helps us also determine which expert to assign to the case. And then once we've determined that we can help you, then we usually get police reports, medical records, if there's any um, photos or video uh, that's relevant for us to review um, or preliminary hearing transcripts, pretty much, you know, it's kind of anything that you would think that you would want us to review so that we can come to an opinion to whatever question it is that you're asking. So you would, so that's interesting. You would want actual testimony uh, as well as the medical records and any photographs, maybe x-rays, something like that. Yeah, I mean, so you, we, we work nationwide, so it really depends on the state. So like here in California, the preliminary hearing transcript, there's a lot of um, information that's provided by the, the victim when they testify and the police officers when they testify that we, where we can maybe get some different information than what we got off of the police reports or maybe things have changed or progressed since the incident. Um, but other states, they, maybe they have a deposition and, they're, and we're able to get information off of that. And then other states, the preliminary hearing transcript doesn't have anything, so we don't revert, review it in those states. So really, it varies state to state. I see. Huh. Which state has the most information, do you think? 
of the ones you worked with? Um, well, I think that the states that allow depositions, honestly, we can get a lot of information because especially if you bring us in before the deposition, because then we can educate you on the medical facts of it and mm-hmm. we can say, okay, these are the questions. And we actually prepare questions for both depositions and trial in, on direct and cross-examination of the, most of the time we're doing it for the medical experts, but we also do occasionally do it for the victim to try and elicit more information about the, you know, the allegations. Okay. And, and what percentage would you say is prosecution and what percentage is defense that you've worked on? Um, well, so the, pro- the prosecution, primarily the only cases that I've worked with the prosecution so far on are strangulation cases. And so the majority of the cases are, are definitely defense. And um, I only, I probably only recently started working with the prosecution in the last couple of years when I became a strangulation expert. Prior to mm. that, my experience was that the prosecution doesn't, they don't hire outside experts. They'll use like their own pathologist or they'll use treating uh, physician or, or nurse. And so they're, they don't have as much of a need to hire outside experts as the defense does. Okay. And how do you become a strangulation expert? <laughs> uh, lots of practice. No, I'm kidding. Um, so <laughs> there is a organization in Southern California in San Diego that's called the Strangulation Institute, and they are um, a train-the-trainer type uh, organization where they bring in the entire team. So they've got attorneys, um, police officers, social workers, nurses, anybody that might be involved in the prosecution of strangulation cases and they train them on the anatomy and the physiology and the consequences and um, also the legal stuff. And we, there's a mock trial that's, that's conducted during the training. And when I went, it was a 40 hour training. I think they've reduced it to 30 hours um, if I've heard correctly, Um, but it's still a pretty extensive training where you learn everything there is to know uh, the ins and outs of strangulation, and so that's the training that I went through. So you're look, you're talking about all the signs and the results of the strangulation, and and how you evaluate whether it is or it isn't, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of one of the common misconceptions about strangulation is that you have to have some kind of sign of uh, redness or bruising on the neck, and so a lot of the cases that I get are. Um, the the defense say the defense contacts me and they'll say well they're saying that you know that she was strangled but there's no marks on her neck so you know what you know we'd like you to come in and say that that means she wasn't strangled and of course I say well that's not the way it works um, you know there's a lot more anatomy and physiology related to strangulation and you don't necessarily have to have marks on the neck for strangulation to have occurred can you talk about that a little bit how does that work if you if there's no marks. Right. So, um, assuming let's let's take the scenario where somebody has put his, you know, a male has put two hands on the neck of a female and squeezed. And there are three different ways in which you can strangle someone. One is the airway, and then the other one you have the carotid artery and the jugular vein on either side of the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and the carotid artery takes the blood to the brain, the jugular vein takes the blood away from the brain, and then, of course, the airway allows oxygen, air and oxygen to get into the body. In strangulation, what the real risk of lethality, for the most part, is related to the level of hypoxia that is reached. So if you cut off one of those three things, you're not going to allow oxygen to get to the brain, and you'll see signs and symptoms of what's called hypoxia, which is low blood oxygen. 
So signs and symptoms of hypoxia might be anything as simple as dizziness or it might be something more severe like seizures or loss of consciousness. So when I look at a strangulation case, I definitely take into account whether or not there's marks on the neck. But the truth of it is that if there are marks on the neck, it has more to do with the localized trauma to the area. So talking a little bit about that, the marks on the neck are often either scratch marks from the victim trying to, it's self-inflicted, the victim's trying to pull the hands off of her neck, and so she scratches Mm -hmm. her own Mm -hmm. neck. Or Mm -hmm. you might see some bruises, and if you see bruises, then those may be from the assailant squeezing the neck and causing the bruising. Bruising happens when blood vessels burst under the skin and the blood seeps out into the extracellular space. So the reason you don't necessarily see bruising or even redness in every case is that to cause those blood vessels to burst, it's much easier to do it if you squeeze the blood vessels between two hard surfaces. So take, for example, your arm or your leg, you have a bone in there. And if you impact your arm or your leg, you're putting something hard from the outside and squishing the tissues um, between that hard object and your bone. And so those blood vessels burst. Uh In your neck, there's not a lot of hard objects. We have some, but there's a lot of soft tissue, and so it takes much more force um, to cause, you know, the same amount of bruising that you would see than, say, in the arm or the leg. So that's why you don't necessarily see bruising or redness. Um, And then also it it doesn't take very much pressure to um, obstruct the jugular vein or the carotid artery or even the airway. So it doesn't take as the amount of pressure it requires to cut those off. Does it doesn't necessarily reach the level of pressure it takes to cause bruising? Okay, so so which brings to mind um, periodically somebody dies at the hands of a police officer from a stranglehold. So so what what is happening in those kind of situations? So the the police officers, uh, some of them were trained in the carotid hold and the bar, or the carotid choker hold. Um, and what ends up happening there is the arm is put around the neck, and so that the forearm and the bicep are obstructing the veins, the vein in the artery on either side of the neck. It's called the carotid sleeper hold because if you occlude the carotid artery it only takes five to 10 seconds to render somebody unconscious. And that's why they mm. teach them that method is to, to basically disable their uh, perpetrator very, very quickly. Uh, most of the time, though, it's you're occluding the, the ju- you may, or I should say not even most of the time, it's possible to only occlude the jugular vein and not the carotid artery. Um, but if the jugular or if the carotid artery is, occluded than the jugular vein most likely is as well because it's more superficial to the carotid artery. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so what happens to cause death in those in- instances? Is it is it because it's it's pre- they it's too hard, or is it some other like a heart attack or something happens as a result of it? Well, there's a lot of different factors. There is a possibility of a heart attack, um, but what is probably more likely is that there's um, other factors, underlying issues with the perpetrator where they're doing this procedure. One of the things they realize is that if it, if they lose consciousness in five to 10 seconds, it's the carotid artery is taking the blood straight to the brain. So you're, you're essentially shutting off the tap and, and a 
pretty much applying a tourniquet to the brain, right? So the brain is mm-hmm. no longer getting the blood and the oxygen that it needs. If you hold it for too long, then your brain cells are going to begin to die. And if they do die, then they will not return. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're just beginning to die and the blood flow is restored, then they may, you know, the blood the cells may recover, and there's terminology that's called ischemia and infarction when it comes to that. So if you've heard the term myocardial infarction, Mm -hmm. that's a heart attack, right? So the heart muscle is the myocardium, and then infarction is that the cells have died. So when you are cutting off the blood flow, the cells first go into ischemia, and that's where you see symptoms of hypoxia. They're, They're yelling out, they're saying, I'm sick, I need my oxygen, I need my blood. And then if that blood flow does, isn't restored, they will eventually die. And that's, that's irreversible. It's, it's cell death. Hmm. So part of what's happening with the police officers is that they, they may be holding it too long or the underlying conditions of the, of the perpetrator that they're trying to bring down and disable, there may be something going on with them. So if they're on drugs or alcohol or if they have an underlying medical condition or there's, you know, there's any number of things that would affect their response to hypoxia and um, cell death. But also, like you said, there is the possibility of uh, stimulating the carotid sinus, which could cause the heart to go into an arrhythmia and they can perish. Hmm. Interesting. So so that's why um, there's so much controversy about it because there's so many unknowns and it's so, and it's not, there's no, there's no way to control uh, the situation Usually when it's, it's a very emotional, intense event. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very dangerous. Basically you're, you're, there's just too many factors that are unknown when you do it to know for sure that if you apply it for five to 10 seconds, that that person's simply going to go unconscious, but you don't know that you're not going to also result in cellular death. Okay. Okay. Well, this is a, Tara, this is a good place to take a quick break. Let's do that, and we'll be right okay. back uh, in a few minutes, a couple minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi, I'm here today with Tara Godoy. She's a certified forensic nurse and runs an organization called Godoy Medical Forensics in Pleasanton, California. Uh, so we're, we're just talking about various kinds of uh, ways that uh, she, uh, situation where she testifies. Um, so regarding strangulation, um, is this typically identified at the scene or is it through an autopsy? Well, so most of my cases um, I, that I testify on, at least, are non-fatal strangulation, and so they're going to be identified at the scene and through uh, the complaints of the, the complaining witness. And then I do definitely consult on autopsy cases, and depending on the case, I might testify as well, but a lot of those I'm providing understanding of the autopsy reports, helping the attorney, you know, realize which, what in the autopsy report is pointing towards strangulation and then helping them maybe develop cross-examination questions for the pathologist. Um, so I get a lot of, I get a lot of those cases as well, but um, most, like I said, most of the ones that I testify on are, are non-fatal. Okay. So expanding it to any other kinds of cases, um, if, if there was a death, what kinds of things would you look for, either in a medical report or a, or a pathology report, that those of us that read these all the time wouldn't see and be able to uh, evaluate? <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. Um, well, so a lot of the a lot of times in terms of the pathology report, I'm looking at. Well, let's take strangulation since that's the, what we've been talking about is where where was there indication of muscle trauma around the neck? So the strap muscle is the sternocleidomastoid muscle that runs in the neck. And if there's hemorrhage there, that may, may not be immediately obvious to somebody that's non-medical, but that is an indication of, of strangulation. But that's the common, uh, like you don't necessarily see the bruising on the outside, but that's where you're going to see the bruising on the inside from the strangulation assault. Um, the other one, of course, that comes up are, is the hyoid bone and then other fractures in the, the 
thyroid and card and the other uh, the larynx things like that. <clears throat> and so a lot of it is looking at the physical trauma related to the assault and what's associated and commonly associated with strangulation, whether or not there's petechial hemorrhaging, whether or not there's other um, signs of hypoxia, things like that. And then in terms of other cases, we'll look at the pathology report and help identify, um, like the ones that I can think of, I've had ones where there's multiple, multiple stab wounds and the attorney's trying to understand if, if it's possible, which ones were kind of earlier on in the process or later on in the process. And most of the time that's really difficult to determine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can determine is things like, okay, which one was the, the most likely to have been fatal? So you've got lots of stab wounds, but only one that, that nicks the heart. And, you know, that's the one that's most likely to have been fatal. Or other cases where there's head trauma, was it really the subdural hematomas, for example, that that caused the death, or was there other factors that that contributed? So we're also looking for underlying medical conditions that may have uh, contributed to the death that caused them, you know, to not maybe not be able to recover as quickly or things like that. So if you had one, like you just mentioned, a subdural hematoma, uh, what other factors uh, could apply to those? Well, the one that's always interesting to me on those is that if the septal hematoma does, isn't very large, that's a very survivable injury. So if it's a small hematoma that's not putting a lot of pressure on the brain, then my instinct is to go searching through the autopsy and figure out what else it was that caused them to die because a small hematoma, people actually live with those for weeks at a time. So it's Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily just because you have a bleed in your brain doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you died from. Okay. Interesting. So you you mentioned stabbings. Talk talk to us a little bit about stabbings or any cases you have that involve that. Sure. We, we get, we get some cases relating to stabbings. I actually just recently had one out of Alaska that the, there was two people in the home and, uh, he was, he said that he was lying on a cot downstairs and that she came downstairs and stabbed him. And then he got up and ran out the front door and she, her version of the story was that she was mad at him and, and they had been fighting and she wanted him out and that she heard him leave. And so she went down to lock the front door, turned around, found a knife on the front and, you know, in the front hallway, picked it up and put it in the sink, but that she had no idea that he was, that he even was stabbed until the police came and arrested her later. So part of my uh, analysis of the case, and even I was pretty skeptical when I first got it. It's the, he stabbed himself defense. I, I was, I wasn't very, you know, I, I, at first I was skeptical, but of course you I were buying look at everything and, <laughs> yeah, to try and keep an open mind and all that. So I ended up looking at it. And when I looked at the angle of the wound itself, so he had a stab wound to the right shoulder, um, really the right chest. Uh, he had actually caused a, it had, it had actually caused a collapsed lung. And, um, so when you looked at the angle of the wound, it was a linear, like if you were to draw a line, it went from the direction of the chin to the direction of the, you know, the right hip, for example. So it was, you know, the angle of it was such that if he, if she were to stab him using her right hand and it was on his, on the right side of his body. 
So she's to, to straddle him and reach over his body to stab the right side of his body with her right hand. The angle of the knife would have been pointing towards the, the shoulder, not towards the chin. Mm-hmm. But there's so many factors, though. So if she stabbed him with his with her left hand, then potentially then it would have been pointing towards the chin. But then there was also a, a, another factor that he the cot that he was lying on was all the way up against the window, and there was a windowsill, which would have made it awkward for her to stab him with her left hand. And so, really, what my, what it came down to was my report essentially said that it, that either one of them could have done it, that he could have stabbed himself or she could have stabbed him. And there's not really any way of definitively saying one way or another. And so they ended up, that case ended up playing out. Um, and there's, an, there's, a, there's information that, you know, she, she went to the media later on and told her story and, and all of that. So it was, it was an interesting case. I was about ready to go to, to Alaska to testify, which was, was kind of fun, but I ended up getting called out at the, at the very last minute. Okay, so what did she tell the media that happened? Well, I mean, she she basically from even through the plea agreements and negotiations, she you know basically said that she did not do this, and her initial offer uh, forced her to uh, say that she had she had done it, and she wouldn't take that offer is what the attorney told me. Um, mm. So then, so what was interesting about that was that she you know she really stood on her ground and said she didn't do it. And that's what she told the, the media as well, is that she just wanted everybody to hear her voice and say that she didn't do it. Um, and so that was, that was interesting, too, the way that went down. So the, so the prosecution offered her a deal that she had to, to actually admit that she had done the crime in order to get whatever they were offering her. Is that's that what you're what saying? I understood, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and what, is, what did he describe that happened? best of you well, he said right so what he had said was that he was like they had been fighting he agreed to that but he said that he was lying on the cot and that she came in and stabbed him and then ran out of the room and he actually initially didn't even really realize he had been stabbed but he got up and went out of the house and called 911 and and found that he was bleeding and um was and that he was having a hard time breathing and which is consistent with the collapsed lung mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And did you know whether she was right-handed or left-handed? She was right-handed, um, as was he, but um, they, uh, there was also some indication that he was a bit ambidextrous. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, we took all that into account as well. As I mean, just because she's right-handed doesn't mean she didn't stab him with her left hand or possibly, you know, stab him with two hands. And it just happened that the left hand was kind of the guiding hand. Uh-huh. Yeah. Lots of factors. Lots of factors. Right. Very interesting. So uh, so it did uh, just, how did it settle? Was it just dismissed? My understanding is that um, she got a plea where she, you know, basically did not have to admit to doing it. Um, and then I think, she, if I remember correctly, she got time served. Okay, interesting. So what what other kinds of situations have you run into, Tara? Uh, kinds of cases or anything you can think of that you might help us understand the kinds of things you do and the kinds of things that um, we would get you involved in? 
Um, well, so one of the things that comes up in kind of a more, uh, maybe a lesser severity type issue are in DUI cases where the, the defendant who has been arrested for the DUI is in some kind of motor vehicle accident and is seen in the emergency department and they're diagnosed with intoxication but not uh, diagnosed with concussion. And when you have a concussion, um, you have many symptoms that are similar to intoxication. And so really you can't determine if the symptoms that you're complaining of are coming from intoxication or if they're coming from concussion. And to diagnose a concussion, all that really is required is a history of some kind of head trauma. It doesn't have to be severe. It's just some kind of impact to the head that's enough to jar your brain. Um, and then to have some kind of symptoms. You don't have to have lost consciousness. Um, you don't even have to have severe symptoms. So, for example, uh, you can diagnose a concussion if somebody hits their head and they and they have a headache or if they have dizziness or something along those lines. It's a fairly low threshold to diagnose with concussion. But what ends up happening is a lot of these people go into the emergency department and because they're intoxicated, that kind of supersedes any other diagnosis that might be made. And so then, of course, their, um, you know, the their ability to consent to blood draws or consent to speaking with the police officers and understanding their rights if they've been read to them, things like that, that is potentially called into question if you've got a, you know, if you've got a potential concussion. You know, that's really interesting because uh, just yesterday I was talking to somebody that had just had a concussion last week. Um, with no head trauma, what had happened was that she was uh, rear-ended and she had a severe whiplash that caused a concussion. And I had not heard that before, so I thought that was extremely interesting. And it was a pretty serious yeah, concussion, actually. Yeah, that's one of the things that I point out when I, I have presentations that I do. And actually, it was just yesterday doing a presentation on traumatic brain injury, and I talk a lot about concussion. And one of the things I talk about is the fact that you don't actually even have to have an impact. So for like the example that you just gave in a motor vehicle accident where you've got whiplash, you're, you've got what's called a hyperextension and a hyperflexion injury where the brain is in your skull kind of suspended. There's fluids and tissues that suspended in your brain. And so when you are in a motor vehicle accident, your body is thrown forward when the car stops. Um, and your brain is actually going to kind of stay where it is initially because it's suspended and it's going to hit the back of your skull. Um, and then, you know, as your body goes, you know, rebounds back in, into the headrest or not, then it'll, uh, the brain will go forward into the front of the skull. And so you've got what's called a coup contra coup injury. So the front of the brain and the back of the brain both have kind of a, an impact site. It doesn't necessarily have to be a contusion or a bruise, but it could be even to that degree. <clears throat> but like you said, it doesn't necessarily take impact to cause a concussion. And the other thing that most people don't know about concussions is that the CT scan is completely negative. If it were not negative, we would have something other than a concussion, like a subdural hematoma or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So, so actually, what, what really happens with a concussion? Well, it's just a jolt to the brain, and so it temporarily um, causes the brain to malfunction, uh, kind of like a, you know, it, you know, it's kind of like getting dazed or something where the, the brain gets, gets bumped, and it just takes a second to regulate itself and get all the elect- electrons 
or, you know, all the neurons and everything kind of back into running order. Um, and so it can be very, very temporary, just a few minutes, or it can last, you know, a day or two. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the symptoms of concussions are what, nausea and headache? What else? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of symptoms of, of concussion, everything from, like, sleep changes. You either sleep too much or sleep less. You can see emotional changes, behavioral changes. Um, repetitive uh, questioning is one that comes up a lot. So, uh, and it's a very, hall- repetitive questioning is a hallmark sign of any kind of head trauma. So, for example, if somebody comes in and says, well, what happened? And you say, oh, you were in a motor vehicle accident. And then a few minutes later, they're like, well, what happened? Oh, you were in a motor vehicle accident. And uh-huh. a few minutes later, what happened? You know, so they, they ask the same question even when it's already been answered over and over and over again. Um, other, you know, dizziness, headache. Um, you can have some, you know, like blurred vision, things like that. I mean, like I said, concussion, the symptoms are just, they're very, very broad and, and can include almost anything that, <clears throat> that where the brain, in terms of the brain functioning. Fascinating. I had a, I had a friend uh, when I was young that, uh, I don't even remember why she got the concussion, but uh, what I, the story I remember her telling was that she walked her bike into her living room, which, you know, her, her, just a regular bicycle. She walked it straight into her living room, which was not, you know, they didn't keep it. They kept it out in the side yard or whatever. There was no reason for her to bring it into the living room. And she, her mom comes home and says, why did you put your bike in the living room? And she just gave her this blank look like, I, I don't remember doing that. And so, it, you know, really uh, behavioral changes or <clears throat> unusual activities can be a, attributed to a concussion, too. So it would be it would depend on where the impact was, what part of the brain was affected. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, because because it would it would depend if your memory was affected, for example, it would depend on hitting that part of the brain where the memory center is. Right. So that would yeah, that would be like the temporal lobe. You'd have a memory. Uh, it would affect your memory. Um, and another, you know, the memory of course can be affected also if you lose consciousness. Mm. So if you, you know, that, so if it was witnessed and you know, they didn't lose consciousness and, and they have, you know, memory issues or, or, or even the memory issues are not isolated to the event, but they're going forward from that. Like the example that I just gave, that's more consistent with a temporal lobe concussion. Whereas if they only have a lapse of memory around the event itself and, it, and whether or not it was witnessed, you know, that they lost consciousness and that's more consistent with losing consciousness. Okay. <clears throat> Interesting. Okay. Tara, we're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back, folks. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Tara Godoy is a certified forensic nurse, and we've been talking about all kinds of evaluations that she does on um, things like blunt force trauma and strangulation, head injuries, et cetera, et cetera. So um, as we're offline, we're just talking a little bit about bruising, different kinds of bruises and and aging them. So tell us a little bit about that, Tara. All right. So one of the common, another common misconception that I see out there is that uh, bruises can be dated by color. And so that like a red bruise is a fresh bruise and a brown bruise is an old bruise. Um, when actuality, there's a lot of literature, um, a lot of literature out there that really debunks that and says that different bruises or different colors of bruises can be actually of any age. Um, so red can actually live throughout the lifespan of the bruise. And most bruises most bruises probably heal between like uh, 10 days to two weeks, but bruises can actually last for up to four to six weeks. <clears throat> and then um, there are some literature that kind of hints that yellow is only seen in bruises that are at least 18, um, 18 hours old, or that green is seen in bruises that are at least 24 hours old. But the, the difficulty with that is what I call yellow, you might call brown, or what I call green, you might call blue. And so even when it comes down to that type of um, timeline, there's still too much, you know, there's too many contradictory things that might affect what the appearance of the bruise looks like. And, of course, looking at a bruise directly versus looking at a bruise in a photograph, you can see a change in the color then as well. So the bottom line is you can't date bruises and um, even bruises of, uh, you know, that are, you'll see in documentation that they're bruises of varying stages of healing or something along those lines. There's one study in which a child had a blue bruise on her arm and a green bruise on her leg, 
or, you know, something along those lines. And they both occurred at the same time. So even on the same person, you can't look at a bruise and say, oh, that bruise must be older than the bruise that's on the other body part because they, there's, there's just study to show that, that bruise, there's too many factors. And bruises are affected by many different things, including underlying conditions. So if somebody's on blood thinners, or um, if they're diabetic, that might affect the appearance of the bruise. Also, the amount of force that it takes to cause the bruise, um, you know, that'll affect the coloration of the bruise <clears throat> and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the size of the bruise and where it is on the body. So it's much easier, like I kind of was talking about it a little bit earlier, <clears throat> it's much easier to cause a bruise on your leg than mm-hmm. it is, say, on your stomach where there's no hard objects to, to burst those blood vessels. So, you know, the, the literature out there essentially says you, you can't date bruises. You can't say that something is a certain amount of, old, you know, hours old or days old. And, it, and is it individualistic depending on the, the person, the person's skin type or color or anything like that? Right. So skin tone can affect the visibility of the bruise as well. Um, you know, obviously it kind of blends in a little bit more on the darker skinned. Uh, people than it does on somebody that's pale, so there's that factor as well that would that would affect your ability to determine how old the bruise was if you were to to attempt to do it by color, which you know again is not by, advised. Interesting. Okay, so uh, Tara, I know I, I get your newsletter, and I know other people might be interested in getting it. So why don't you tell folks how they would go about getting your newsletter when you send it out? Uh, what, how often do you send it out? I send it out once a month. It's a, a month, it's yeah. an e-newsletter, and so um, and all of the topics are medical topics relating to criminal law. Um, so we actually the one that's going to go out today is on or well, go out this week is on bruising, interestingly enough. And then we've done <laughs> other topics like strangulation and stabbing. And so there's you know there's always what I say is that if you it's going to be applicable to one of your cases, either one you've had in the past or one you, you're going to have in the future, because they are based off of the cases that we see in our office, and so they're all very relevant. Um, so, like I said, it goes out once a month, and if you go to my website, which is godoymedical.net, that's G-O-D-O-Y medical.net, um, there should be a sign-up on the right-hand side of the screen right on the homepage. Um, or, you know, if you're having difficulty, feel free to email us at info, I-N-F-O, at godoymedical.net, and we can uh, manually sign you up as well. Okay. And Tara, I know you said you do almost 100% criminal, but what if you what if there was a uh, trauma, brain trauma, civil case? Do you right. get involved so that's in those? Me personally, I have, like I said, I have uh, three three nurses. Um, I'm sorry, four nurses, and I'm looking to hire two more. And we work nationwide, so I have one nurse in Florida, and I'm actually hoping that I'll be hiring two more out in Florida soon by the end of the year. I have one in Maryland, and then I have uh, two nurses other than myself here in California, and we all work nationwide, um, and we all work any kind of case which involves medical. So most of my nurses, well, two of my nurses here in California are clinically active, so they are. Uh, that's really kind of a criteria when you're looking at uh, the civil cases. You want somebody that's still clinically active. It's not. It's it's good to have in any case, but um, in the criminal cases, it tends to be more focused on your area of expertise and your focus of continuing education and things like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely, we take medical malpractice, personal injury. We're we're happy to take any case that has 
medical records or traumatic injuries. Um, and the other cases that I often get involved in oddly and more recently have been uh, family law cases. So if there's a custody battle or a divorce proceeding and there's allegations of uh, spousal abuse or domestic violence or child abuse or things like that, a lot of times I get involved in those cases as well. So really I have a, a broad range of uh, attorneys that, that will seek us out. So when you say clinically active, uh, is that because the um, medicine changes so frequently that you need to be on top of it by being clinically active? Well, no, medicine changes, and I stay on top of that by doing continuing education and making sure that I know what's happening in my areas of expertise. But in civil cases, when you're looking at the standards of care, um, then it, that tends to be, they just they just tend to like nurses that are, that are still working in the hospitals, um, they, they find them to be more credible because you're looking at the standard of care and, and what's happening in the hospitals right right now. I see. Okay. All right. So now I know you, you conduct seminars all over the country uh, for various groups and attorneys, investigators, anybody that's interested. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's in your seminars. Right, so I have uh, four different topics that I, I primarily offer and then one that I, I kind of goes for special requests, I guess. But So I have a, a presentation that I do on strangulation. I have another presentation that I do on blunt force trauma that talks about the dating of bruises and uh, also other injuries like abrasions and lacerations. Um, I have a general presentation that I do on medical record review and what the focus of that one is is trying to well, I titled it what, what You Need to Know Without Googling Every Medical Term. And so the idea is to be able to help non-medical people look at the medical records and find where they need to be looking at so that they're not Googling the entire page of medical terms. They're just, you know, identifying the specific areas and just helping them recognize what they're looking at. And that's a really, really popular one because it applies to Every attorney, um, you know, whether it's civil or criminal, it, it helps investigators, it helps social workers, and that's probably one that I do more often than any other, uh, any of the other ones. Um, and then finally, I have one on traumatic brain injury where I talk about the different levels of brain injury, and I talk about intoxication um, and how a brain injury mimics intoxication, and then also the person's ability to comprehend, um, like, I, what, like we were talking about earlier, their ability to com- comprehend the uh, the police officers, you know, whether it's they're reading the rights or whether they're um, consenting to a blood draw or something along those lines. And so that's, that's, those are the four main ones. And then I also have one that I do on acceptable, acceptable medical practice, which is specific to DUI cases. And I've seen that motion more in California. I don't think I've had any outside of California. So that would, that would be one that's more specific to California. And, and why is California different? Well, I, I don't know that it is. It's just the only, it's a, the acceptable medical practice for blood draw um, is the motions to suppress the blood draw. I've only so far been called for cases in California. I haven't seen anybody doing that out of state and there hasn't been a lot of interest in that presentation out of state. So that's just me going off of my own experiences of when, where I'm seeing those cases. So in California, um, isn't it, doesn't implied consent take care of uh, authorization to take a blood draw? 
Well, there's um, the, there's case law, Schmerber and Cuevas, that uh, says that if the blood draw itself is not done in an acceptably med- medical manner or if it causes undue pain and suffering to the person, that the, that the blood can be um, suppressed. What kinds of would be. what? All right. What kinds of things would be where a blood draw would be taken in a non-acceptable manner? Well, um, I had one where they put the needle in backwards. Backwards. Oh my goodness, that hurt. <laughs> yeah. So she pointed it towards the wrist, not towards the heart. And so that, you know, so that kind of thing, that's pretty egregious. There's um, other ones where when I'm looking at, most of the time I'm looking at videos of the blood draw and uh, identifying where the phlebotomist or the nurse has not met the, uh, the technique standards that are set in place to protect both the, the patient and the nurse or the phlebotomist. So, okay, you just mentioned something I wasn't aware of. So when they do a blood draw, they always video it? Not always. These are usually body cams off of police officers. Okay, body cams. I wondered about that. Okay. So, uh, so you would yeah, get... Yeah, and the ones that uh, I've been, you know, the ones that I see are more, they, they gain more traction is when we have the video so we can show, you know, versus just an affidavit of the blood draw. Um, but when we have the video, we're able to really look at the technique and make, and, and make more comments on whether or not it was done appropriately. So, you know, so I can see where maybe um, um, somebody has had something to drink, but they're not intoxicated, but they maybe have a concussion. Say say it's a whiplash and maybe have a concussion mm-hmm. where the officer would think just because they smelled alcohol that they were DUI. I could see right. how that could go forward with a DUI. Are there other situations that that would happen? You mean in terms of the medical, medically acceptable manner or just in general? In, in terms of uh, an officer pulling somebody over and identifying them as uh, intoxicated when they maybe weren't, but because they smelled alcohol right. and because they had a concussion, um, they, they presumed well, they were it, it, intoxicated. Sure. It doesn't even require for them to have a concussion. There's, there's definitely instances in which somebody has um, you know, an underlying medical condition or, you know, there's other causes of uh, nystagmus that includes just dehydration or dizziness or, you know, there's an, any number of reasons why somebody might have nystagmus that's not related to intoxication or impairment. Um, and then, like you said, they, maybe they had one sip of wine, so they have the smell of alcohol in their breath, um, yeah. but they're not necessarily intoxicated. And so, uh, or if they've got, um, you know, a medical condition that makes it, so that they don't have a uh, steady gait when they're walking. You know, they, mm-hmm. they can't walk straight, so they appear to be stumbling. Or, right. and then the, the other one is kind of going back towards the concussion is any kind of head trauma can mimic impairment without a, without a drop of alcohol or drugs, drugs in their okay. system. Okay. Well, Tara, we're at the end of our hour. I really appreciate you being on the show. Fascinating information. Uh, I hope everybody... Uh, signs up for the newsletter because it's really valuable and we have to go thank you again it's PISD Classified see you next week thanks so much for listening thank you you've been listening to PISD Classified with your host Francie Kaler 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 